Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Somehow, over the last few decades, comics and the movies and television shows based on them have become the biggest business in entertainment. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, as it's known, you know, Black Panther, Spider-Man, Iron Man, etc., has grossed two times more money at the box office than any other franchise. At the same time, the comic has also transmuted into an innovative literary art form. Our guest... Columbia professor Jeremy Dauber has a new book out on this whole wild American history from the Civil War to the modern graphic novel. And we'll spend the hour with him talking comics. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The combination of words and illustrations that make up comics, called picture stories back in the 19th century, seems so simple. And yet they've had a remarkable power to shape the very idea of what American society should be or is. From Thomas Nast cartoons exposing corruption in late 1800s New York City politics, to the Peanuts comic strip in the 1950s and beyond, to graphic memoirs like Persepolis. Columbia University American Studies professor Jeremy Dauber traces the evolution and power of the art form in his new book, American Comics, A History. And Jeremy joins us here today on Forum. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really great to be here. Thank you, Alexis. So, you know, Jeremy, it's nearly unimaginable to me how thoroughly comics-based entertainment franchises now dominate our culture. (laughs) And while I love, and I really truly do love, the current crop of young adult graphic novels, I could probably be convinced that comic book characters and stories have too much of a hold on our culture. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I really think, and I agree with you, I think that really what should dominate our culture is newly published histories of American comics by, <laughs> by Norton. That's, so I, that's where I think you should have a stranglehold for the next couple of weeks uh, on the culture. No, but, you know, one of the things I think that you really point out as you were introducing this is that comics really is a, a medium for storytelling, and it can tell all sorts of stories. And part of what I do in the book is say, you know, it's not just sort of the superheroes that are on the multiplexes, you know, or on... Uh, Disney Plus or whatever, but it's it's sort of a wide variety of storytelling, and it's a wonderful forum to to tell uh, all of these different kinds uh, of approaches to to what makes us uh, find meaning. And so I, I'm delighted if all of those different approaches, some of which are very unfamiliar to what we think of as comics or what we often think of as comics, would find their their purchase, and not just one particular branch of that tree. 
the superhero branch that is. Let's um, let's go back in the long history to sort of the the origins of this format. Like, when does this really get going? Both you know around the world, but but here in the U.S. Yeah. So you know, like you were saying, I mean, the the juxtaposition of image and text, you know, a really old story, you know, and and different scholars put this all the way back into prehistory, or you can start it with the printing press. You can say that there were cartoons in colonial era America. Um, But really, in some ways, uh, you know, the story that I'm telling and and, and the story of American comics really sort of takes off around the Civil War when you have these weekly magazines like Harper's and you have someone like Thomas Nast, uh, who really is able to sort of bring together a national audience around images and words together uh, and popularizing images like Uncle Sam or contemporary image of Uncle Sam. Uh, of Santa Claus, uh, putting cartoons to kind of uh, uh, gather enthusiasm for uh, the Union cause uh, during the Civil War, uh, and and later on would go on to sort of fight crime himself. He would call out the depredations of sort of Tammany Hall and some of these sort of urban machine politics. So, uh, you know, these kind of weekly news magazines begin the story, uh, weekly news magazines, weekly illustrated magazines. Um, and then uh, with the arrival of newspaper syndicates and chains, uh, which put in comics as a, a circulation booster, you know, it really just takes off into a whole new era. I was sort of stunned in your book to realize how many of the sort of those iconic images of the 19th century, which have kind of filtered down to us in, in various forms, all came from one guy. <laughs> Thomas Nast <laughs> seemed to have an absolutely incredible way of kind of condensing an American idea into a, a, a picture. I think that's very well put. You know, what comics can do uh, in just such a powerful way sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, is really take uh, all of these ideas that are floating around in the imagination and put them and embody them in one particular image or one sequence of images. Uh, and, and that can have, and it has over the course of our uh, American history, uh, an incalculable effect on the American imagination. And Nast is a perfect portrait of that. Yeah. So walk us into the 20th century here. When does this thing we call a comic book <laughs> become a comic book? Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to make clear, you know, in the book is that really it almost starts as a kind of byproduct of something which was incalculably influential in American culture, which was the comic strip, right? So you have uh, in these newspapers, like I was saying, you have these comic strips. Uh, they're, they're daily. They're sort of syndicated often around the country. Everybody is reading them. They're, they're just part of the American parlance, uh, you know, uh, from, from the president uh, all the way down to sort of your, your, your six-year-old reading it on a Sunday afternoon. Um, but, of course, they're newspapers. They're, they're extremely disposable. You know, it's, it's today's fish wrapper was yesterday's newspaper. And so people sort of say the idea, let's put together some of these uh, in, in kind of book or pamphlet form. Uh, and, you know, there's circumstances of sort of working out the technology of this a little bit. But eventually... People uh, continue to innovate and they say, hey, you know what? We don't have to just reprint these comic strips in book form and sell those. We can put all new material uh, in, in these books. And yet, you know, we'll, we'll find all of these people. It's the Great Depression, right? We'll find all these people who are trying to break into this lucrative and elite comic strip business where they could make a lot of money. Um, but they can't do it. You know, there's only so many slots. Uh, there's barriers to entry. 
let's let's get them for these new materials in the comic books. Uh, and, you know, there are these two teenagers from Cleveland, Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, uh, and, and they have tried to break into the comic strip business with this costumed hero, uh, and it hasn't done anything. And so, you know, they, they jump at the chance to, uh, to put their material in this new comic dedicated to different kinds of tales of action. And Action Comics 1 features Superman on the cover, and that really puts the comic book industry, which had been around for a couple of years, but really puts it off to the races in an entirely new direction. So comic books aren't exactly born at the same moment as this concept of the superhero, uh, but it's but it's pretty close, it sounds like. It's pretty close. I mean, you have a couple, you know, you could say, is Popeye a kind of superhero before superheroes, right? Uh, there was a character uh, called the Phantom uh, who kind of appeared in comic strips. Um, and on the other side of the, news, the newsstand, you know, you have these pulp magazines, that have people like the Shadow, uh, you know, and uh, um, uh, other kinds of pulp heroes who have a lot of the characteristics that Superman does. But it's all really coming together. We're talking about a couple of year period uh, in the mid to late 30s. And bam, you know, there's that superhero thing. And that just takes off for the next couple of years. Costumed heroes. Yeah. Superheroes are really kind of more or less the, the full combination of all these characteristics. They really are kind of like a new concept in the world, though. Yeah, at this time. <laughs> I, you know, I, th I think that's right. I think there's a lot of, you know, ink spilled on saying, you know, was Samson the first superhero? You know, right. was Gilgamesh? All these actually, there's but more continuity than you might think. Yeah, right. I, I think that's right. But, but on the other hand. You know, putting all of these things together and just sparking as this kind of magic that really happens in, in certain ways very fundamentally at a particular time and place, I think. So, I mean, really putting on your American studies hat here and thinking about <laughs> the, you know, the, the context of that moment, like why did we need superheroes so badly in the late 1930s in the United States? Well, I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're really in the Great Depression, right? And there's sort of this desire uh, for escapism, uh, you know, and, and that escapism is happening in a lot of different ways. In the comic strips, you're having science fiction strips like uh, uh, Buck Rogers, right, like Flash Gordon. You're having uh, strips like Tarzan that sort of, uh, you know, have sup of colonialism in certain ways, right, but go into these sort of different kind of locales. Um, you know, people really want to escape, Right, but there's it's also this age of sort of new science fiction. Superman, early one of his early sober case is the Man of Tomorrow. Right, mm. people are kind of also looking forward to. They're trying to get out of this uh, and something that can you know leap big social problems in a single bound, so to speak. <laughs> uh, that really is what. And and Superman really starts out as a kind of Rooseveltian sort of fighter for the little guy against sort of the big uh, the big machine. Uh, so to speak. Uh, Jerry Siegel, the big writer, said he, wa he, he grew up listening to uh, FDR's fireside chats. Hmm. So yeah. um, what is special as a storytelling form, do you think, about these kind of, you know, picture stories about, about comics? Like, what, what do they do that other things don't? Well, you know, I think one of the amazing things is that they create a kind of language um, in which, uh, when it's done in its best possible way, either the reader is doing a lot of work in reading into these 
uh, these frozen pictures, right? They really are sort of these two-dimensional pictures on a page. Uh, and, and reading through sort of the breaks between panel and panel, all of their own things, all their own ideas, all their own stories. And also, you have this incredible juxtaposition in many of these comics between word and image, where mm -hmm. if you just saw the pictures, it wouldn't quite do it. If you just saw the words, if you just read the words, it wouldn't quite do it. Somehow that alchemy really allows for the exercise of uh, sort of mental imagination uh, in a way that, that really no other art form does. Other art forms do different things, but they don't do this thing uh, or these things. And, and I think that uh, that really exercised a lot of uh, people's imagination sort of right from the get-go. Yeah. We're talking uh, about the evolution of comics with Jeremy Dauber, a professor of American Studies and Jewish Literature at Columbia University. His new book is American Comics, A History. And we want to hear from you. I mean, this is a perfect listener uh, call-out, I think. <laughs> we just want to hear your favorite cartoon, comic book, graphic novel. T tell us why you love a particular uh, comic. We're also curious, you know, what are your questions about the history of this art form? What are things you've heard about how this art form might work, uh, but you're not sure? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, of course. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Jeremy Dauber, I want to know, what's your favorite comic? You know, um, they used to say that the golden age of science fiction is 12. Um, and I sort of feel that way about comic books as well. That, that for me, just speaking personally and autobiographically, when I was uh, just turning into high school, I'm precisely the age, I'm a little older than you, I think, Alexis, that um, just when I was beginning to say, Comics are getting a little juvenile for me, right, with all the confidence of a 13-year-old, right, saying, okay, you know, I'm done with this childish media. <laughs> right. Too uh, old for this. Uh, yeah. Too old for this. Um, Mouse and Watchmen came out at exactly that moment, right? So uh, the two of those, and as, as you said, I, I'm a professor of Jewish literature now. I had a, a Jewish upbringing, a strongly Jewish upbringing. Um, the idea that something that I was learning about in Jewish history classes that I, I, read about, I heard about in my community was able to speak to these issues in a form that I had loved, uh, that was incredibly uh, uh, prominent in my upbringing. Uh, and in the same way, Watchmen, which was a more standard, although not standard by any stretch, but more standard superhero type narrative, was saying, you know, the kinds of concerns, these geopolitical concerns, it's, it's said it, it very much in that Cold War heating up Reagan era, um, you know, it really can speak to adult concerns in yeah. a way that Superman bashing Lex Luthor again <laughs> wasn't going to be able to do. We're talking the evolution of comics with Jeremy Dauber, Columbia University professor. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about comics, their popularity, their evolution, and their history with Jeremy Dauber, a professor of American studies and Jewish literature at Columbia. His new book is American Comics, A History. So I do want to talk a little bit about the incredible popularity of comics in the golden age and sort of what it led to. Uh, You know, if we date the golden age to Superman coming out in 38. I think that's the standard um, timeline. Um, How popular do comics get kind of up through World War II and into, you know, the post-war period? I mean, I think that, I think that nobody had imagined these kind of numbers uh, at first that comic books were doing. I mean, the idea that individual comics were selling over a million copies uh, uh, per issue, and you can figure, right, these are not comics that, like, as later decades would have it, are going right into a bag for investment purposes, right? These are comics that are being swapped around the neighborhood, being read by lots of kids. Um, you know, w- and this is at a time when the population of the United States is, of course, much smaller than it is right. now. You know, a, a, a significant portion of people are really, and, and specifically the younger kids are, are reading these Superman uh, and superhero comic books. Uh, so just having an incalculable effect. And I will say that, you know, many of the creators of these Golden Age comics were, were Jewish. Uh, and I think perhaps for that reason, some number of them, not all, but some number were, were very pro-intervention in World War II hmm. before, uh, you know, while there was still a strong streak of isolationism in American culture, unfortunately, before Pearl Harbor. Um, and so, you know, you have, I think, mentalities also being shaped of saying, you know, we really have to stand up for the little guys of Europe uh, against this big you know, Nazi meanie uh, that's, that's going on. And, and you know, that, that's a, su- a superficial way of putting it, but I think that was part of it, too. Yeah. Why were so many of the early creators, which is something you kind of detail in the book, is how, how many of these early comic book creators uh, were Jewish, and in particular were Jewish immigrants, um, or the children of Jewish immigrants. Yeah. Why is that? Why, what's your take on that? Well, you know, I, I go back to what Will Eisner, who was one of the, the you know, the, the founding members of the comic business, sort of said. He said, uh, look, this was not a, a, an elevated medium. He used something more pungent, but we're on public radio. <laughs> um, and he said, look, you know, Jews were not able to get into uh, more prestigious kind of jobs. You know, there were, there were these restrictions, whether they were formal or informal. Uh, and so this was, as I said, this uh, comics really started out as this kind of cut and paste kind of chop shop operation, cutting up old comic strips, maybe, you know, if you couldn't get into the the good businesses. So that was part of it. And then it became kind of network effects where you said, okay, well, you know, we need somebody because the the demand for this, like we were just saying, is so great. Hey, my wife's cousin needs a job. Uh, You know, I'm going to bring him in, um, you know, because, you know, he can write a little bit. And the wife's cousin of one of these comic book companies turns out to be Stan Lee. Right, who just stays around. Um, so you have these real kind of uh, discrimination and network effects lead to this concentration uh, of this group do, uh, creating these characters that have remained iconic you know, for decades, uh, now almost close to a century in some cases. Let's bring in our first caller, Laurel from Napa. Welcome to the show. Hi. 
Hey, um, I was just in the car and listening to the show and, and loved hearing about the history, um, in particular because my mother was born in 1931 in Chicago, and um, she's still around today. And when she talks about her childhood, she talks with, with such excitement about trading comics um, with kids in the neighborhood. And, and I, you Has know, she I've mentioned really any that she that loved? Together. Laurel, like do you, you know, I, I'm sure if I picked up the phone and called her right now, she could probably <laughs> name a few. Patch her the, in. The story yeah. I was, yeah, <laughs> the story I always came in is, you know, I that's how I I met Tommy Florsheim of Florsheim Shoes. We would trade comic books. You know, he lived two neighborhoods over, and um, so so much excitement for her. I think it was because it was. Um, it was kind of the street uh, currency. You know, you could go trade these comic books. They were cheap enough in the Depression depression time that they could afford to get them and trade them with their friends. And mm-hmm. I compare it with my son's trading of Pokemon cards <laughs> and Magic the Gathering. Uh, so anyway, thanks for... Yes. for, uh, for uh, that's a show. great story, Laurel. Uh, yeah. I love yeah. it. It's an amazing, Laurel, it's a great observation, a great story, because, you know, also right now we kind of think of these comics in sort of neat books where everybody can get or they're available on the comicsology or the internet everybody can get everything right but like you're saying somebody went to the newsstand down the street and they got a cool comic that wasn't available in the next neighborhood's newsstand um or you know they had not gotten a chance to buy it. and so you know you had the hot commodity of this particular superman story uh and it really was street currency is exactly the word for it um and it really led also to the development of a certain way of looking at that 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 medium which was you know, every story had to be individual. Every story had to be self-contained. You couldn't have what we have now, like narrative arcs or whatever, because you never knew what copy you would have or whether you'd get a chance to trade with the Florsheim kid uh, who had the new uh, the new copy. You know what? I, I, I actually think that's one of those comic superpowers, too, is this ability to – they had to sort of create a world that all these stories could live in. And it's almost kind of like you that world-building aspect is, turned out to be perfect for the kind of uh, franchises of today that also need to have like a sort of cinematic universe. I think that's right. And one of the stories that I tell in my book is how that process of world building that you're talking about is sort of a painfully built kind of innovation of step on top of step on top of step of things that we now think are so obvious, right? But, but you know, someone had to come up with this idea kind of of saying, oh, you know what, let's have two of these characters team up. Right. You know, someone had to think of that. Um, and, and you can find like the particular moments where that happens or where they say, you know what, we're going to refer back to a story that happened in the past. And that's going to be a motive for this story. Um, and like you say, now we have that capability to have, you know, whatever it is now, 26, 27 linked movies in a Marvel Cinematic Universe, which would have been inconceivable to anybody, you know, starting back in the day. Yeah. Uh, Anna from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. You know, I'm just struck by how normal it is to talk about a whole genre as if the whole nation was, uh, you know, focused on this when really it was mainly male focused. And same with all the creators. We're predominantly all men, you know, one or two, maybe women. And even that's still going on today. And so all the superheroes are men, certainly maybe Wonder Woman, but definitely women were more as a sexual object in most of these comics. And definitely like that later on Mad Magazine, that definitely was quite misogynistic as well. And so it's like, where are the women and where's the representation of the women, both as creators 
and as characters. And that's really been lacking definitely in the history of comics and happily probably changing even today. So today, even an age issue is still, you know, always a dominant factor. It's always youth and not old middle age or older. Um, that's all I had to say. Anna, no, really appreciate that. And it's something uh, I want to give Professor Dauber a chance to respond to because there's a there's considerable amount of thought and effort that he put into this in the book. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Anna, I think it's a really important question. It was one that I tried to take up uh, in my book, which is whose stories got told, whose didn't get told, who were the readers, who weren't the readers. And that, you know, not surprisingly, maybe, or maybe surprisingly, over 125 years of history changed. I'll just give you one statistic to show you an example. In 1947, between six, if you looked at six to 11-year-old kids, 91% of girls were regular comics readers. Right. So, you know, a real massive proportion at that particular point read comics, but that number dropped off substantially for girls much more sharply than it did for boys kind of after that. Um, there were all these efforts to try and change that. Um, one of them was in that real period in the late 1940s, something which were called romance comics that had all of the, let's call problematic aspects that some of, that you can imagine romance comics in the 1940s might have. There was only one ending that could be sort of a white picket fence domesticity marriage. But people were sort of thinking about this predicated on these sort of large numbers of young, in that case, young girls who were interested. Some of those girls grew up to be young women who were still interested in writing comics and producing comics, but didn't find places, as you're saying, uh, for them to uh, express themselves uh, in, in the current uh, uh, environment. And so starting in the 1960s, some of them broke away and made up their own comics, comics like It Ain't Me Babe comics and what was called women's comics. Uh, and those would go on to be the basis of a, a kind of, as you were implying, a renaissance of new they shouldn't have been new, but newer voices uh, uh, that that has really pervaded to a much greater extent than than ever before uh, uh, the the marketplace now. Uh, and whereas now, you know, someone like Raina Telgemeier, um, who is San Francisco uh, native, with, yeah. Oh, San Francisco native Raiden Selgemar, uh, who is, uh, you know, bestriding the comics market like a colossus, right? It's clearly the dom one of the dominant two figures uh, in, in comics publishing today. Hey, Anna, before we let you go, did you have a favorite or were you sort of, you were, because of the sort of gendered nature of this medium, you kind of swore it off? You know, I think, I think as a kid, you know, I did read Mad Magazine, but it's always uncomfortable. And now thinking back, of course, I'm like, that's all I had. And, you know, that there was sort of these romance comics is like a nod to, I guess, women being much more interested in emotional interactions and relationships. Um, but, but no, I think that's the thing. It's mm -hmm. like there's an amazing artwork and there are these superhero stories and that's all you had. And if, you, if, if that's all you have, well, then you try to make the best of it. But really, in this age of bringing to light untold stories and unheard voices, you know, women's voices are still lacking. And definitely any woman over the age of 30, that's not represented. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot and of... Even over 50, and that's a huge number of the population, huge earning power, huge amount of customers, and nobody's talking to them. It is like just our society is really... 
like making those us women in that specifically that age group very invisible and that we don't have stories. All great points, Anna. And I think, you know, I was going to say that in if you look at the kind of graphic novels right now or, you know, later we're going to have Tin Fam on, a Bay Area cartoonist who's publishing a book with First Second Press. First Second Press, amazing, amazing graphic novels. But to your point about the the age aspect of this, almost all of them are targeted towards much younger people, have these kind of uh, youthful narrators. Yeah, um, We're talking, uh, thank you so much, Anna, for your call. Uh, we're talking about the evolution of comics with Jeremy Dauber, a professor of American studies and Jewish literature at Columbia University. His new book is American Comics, A History. And we'd love to hear from you. Share your favorite comic or graphic novel. Tell us why you love it. Or as Anna did, tell us why actually you haven't been attracted to the genre. Uh, if you love comics... What do they do that other media do not? Like, what do you find special about this form? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter and Facebook are KQED Forum, or you can email your favorites to forum at kqed.org. Listener Judd comments, Comics in all forms were a huge influence on my life choices. I'm 79. I had hundreds of comics, late 1940s into the 1950s, from Disney to Tales from the Crypt. My mom was very concerned over the depiction of women in Mad Magazine, as you also heard from Anna. Cats and Jammer Kids was violent, Dick Tracy violent to alley-oop, goofy graphic novels. I recently finished the great Incognito series by Matt Johnson. Uh, Jeremy Dauber, I wanted to get at the, I don't know if I necessarily want to call it a moral panic, but the concerns in the mid-century and what sort of formed out of that, this code for the comics magazine industry and kind of the effects that it had in, in changing how comics worked. Yeah, I, I think it's fine to call it a moral panic because I think <laughs> in some ways that was what it was. And I think that, you know, I, I talk about this in my book, you know, it's one in a series of moral panics uh, about comics that, they, that from the very beginning of those comic strips, you have people saying, Oh, their lurid colors are going to disturb children's dreams, you know, and that uh, after on Monday mornings, kids are always more disturbed because they've read all those Sunday funnies and now they're all, you know, or the cats and jammer kids, as Jed mentions, uh, one person harumphs in I think like 1906, something like that, you know, we've now learned that kids are being taught that it's okay to push old people out of windows or something like that, you know. So you do have this sort of right on, but as you say, um, that, that moral panic narrative really reaches a new iteration and, in fact, in some ways a peak iteration in the 1950s uh, in response to uh, a wave of horror and crime comics that come out sort of around the same time as those romance comics we were talking about, the late 40s to the early to mid 50s. Um, And really, I I just want to remind you, right, if you were 10 years old and you were interested in Superman in 1938, right, by the time it's 1952, you're in your early 20s, right? You're Mm. looking like I was, you're looking for something a little bit different, um, but you may still love the comic medium. And and these comics, which were often, uh, you know, very heavily influenced by, you know, magazines that were appearing in the horror pulps, the science fiction magazines, those kinds of things, they were really aimed uh, at an older audience. Um, including the audience of, let's say, returning troops um, who had read comic books in great numbers at the front. You know, you, you know, but there was no question that kids also were reading these comics. Uh, and so, you know, there was this real concern among sort of the self-appointed guardians of morality um, that, that co- these comics were contributing to juvenile delinquency. Hmm. And it, it does feel like, I mean, perhaps not surprisingly, 
those late 40s, the early 50s, was a time there had been a tremendous amount of social stress on the country. A lot of families torn apart by the war. People didn't come back from the war. Uh, people had all sorts of different circumstances, changed socioeconomic circumstances. Women who had been Rosie the Riveters were kind of coming back uh, into the household, sometimes uh, not very comfortably, sometimes a lot of divorce rates were going up. So it's not surprising that people were paying attention to how the kids were affected by this. Yeah. And, you know, Whether- looking looking back for us now, I think the thing that really pops out more than the violence, which we've sort of been desensitized to, are the racial stereotypes. I mean, in addition yeah. to the, the stereotypes about women, uh, let alone um, anybody who was not heterosexual. But the racial stereotypes really kind of are are difficult to deal with now. How, how did you address that in the in the book? Well, you know, I think it comes at certain point. I mean, this is, uh, you know, in, in different ways at different times. So, you know, as a cultural historian, you want to uh, make clear that uh, when you look back at this history, there are a lot of things about this history that, uh, you know, we're not very proud of. This is not a, uh, you know, a whitewashing, and I use that term, unfortunately, uh, on purpose, right? This is not a whitewashing kind of kind of history. Um, and so the, it is full of these kind of racist caricatures uh, in all sorts of different ways. Um, what you also want to do is say, uh, how are these materials deployed uh, in very particular historical ways in very historical periods? So, for example, in that moral panic of the 1950s, uh, people were very concerned about racist, image, racist language in these EC comics. Um, the people who wrote the comics said, yes, we sometimes use racist language, but we use it and put it in the mouths of racists who were then punished terribly uh, by virtue of the fact that they are racist. So that, of course, is a different thing. Conversely, uh, in the independent free speech countercultural uh, movements uh, and the independent comics of the 1960s, there are a lot of people who said, look, we can say anything, right? All the limits are off, right? And they used that to uh, fill their pages with a lot of racist, uh, misogynist, uh, very viol- a lot of violence against women, a lot of sexually very pornographic and very aggressive stuff. And I think it's, uh, we are licensed to ask, really, uh, is the ideological point that they want to make about free speech worth the kind of offensive button pushing uh, that, they, that they do? And I think that's a, that's a question that we really uh, have to pose. We're talking about the evolution of comics and their impact in our society with Jeremy Dauber, a professor of American Studies and Jewish Literature at Columbia. His new book is American Comics, A History. And we're loving hearing from you. Uh, you can share with us you know, your favorite comic book or tell us what comics do for you that other media do not. And give us a call, 866-733-6786. Twitter and Facebook are at KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Listener Laura writes, As a parent of two elementary-aged children, I am delighted with the more recent proliferation of graphic novels on nonfiction subjects. Series such as Science Comics and Nathan Hale Hazardous Tales History Series make complex or hefty topics accessible and fun for kids. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the history and impact of comics with Jeremy Dauber, a professor of American Studies and Jewish Literature at Columbia. He's got a new book out called American Comics, A History. And we'd like to add Tin Pham to our conversation now. He's a Bay Area cartoonist and educator and author of the book Sumo. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Hi, Tin. And also, we uh, check out KQED um, because Tin has some pretty awesome comics about Vietnamese food in, in San Jose on on the site. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, Tin, we were kind of, we've gone um, over the history of comic books, kind of up to, let's call it like the 80s or 90s, um, yeah. when you start to have different things going on. You start to have zines, you start to have the influence of the internet. Tell us how you got your start uh, creating comics. It's perfect time for me to enter because this is my time here. Um, you know, I, I, I immigrated uh, with my family to, uh, to America when I was five in uh, 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 1980. And it wasn't until like, I think I would say third or fourth grade that I discovered a comic. And up till then, I'd always loved, you know, like watching TV. So we were always watching cartoons and, and uh, you know, I really loved the electric company had this great segment uh, where Spider-Man was on there teaching kids how to read and stuff like that. And I was enthralled with the whole superhero genre. But because I came as an immigrant, I, I was not a very good reader. And I was also a pretty reluctant reader, you know. Um, uh, learning English was a pretty hard thing for me. Um, and then I discovered comics. I went to 7-Eleven once and I discovered an issue of Marvel Team Up. And uh, it was Spider-Man and Moon Knight on the cover. And I was like, oh. And I spent all my candy money on that comic. <laughs> and ever since then, I just I, I just fell in love with the medium. And I fell in love with, and, and it really opened my whole world, really. It mm-hmm. opened my whole world up to literature, to art, to everything. Because here was something that I was, I, I not only was I interested in the subject matter, but I could read it because... Um, I can juxtapose the words and the pictures and what I couldn't get from the words I got from the pictures. And, and as the more I read comics, the more the words just, you know, I, 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 I'm a, I'm a very pictorial person. So the words just came alive, you know, and then since then, you know, that was the gateway into like not only more 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 comics, but also books as well. So I really credit comics for, well, I credit comics for everything that's been great in my life. So, uh, so, so, uh, so that was the start of it, and, and ever since that Seven Eleven uh, trip in the '80s, you know, and the comics in the '80s and '90s just blew up. 
And if you were a kid in, in the 80s and 90s and you were into comics, that was the time. There was so many crazy things happening, so much creativity th being th thrown about, and, and we were all just there living for it, you know? He, yeah, Tin, you know, earlier, uh, Jeremy Dauber was telling us about sort of the the industry as it was um, mm -hmm. back in the in the 30s and 40s. And I was curious for you, Tim, what was the industry like as you encountered it? Like, was it difficult for you to break in um, oh. as, a, as, a, as a creator? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, when I started um, uh, doing comics and wanting to do comics, pr pr probably like in my late high school and into college, I, I found that it was really hard to break in, like to, to try to get into doing comics. You would have to go to these comic conventions and you would have to like have a portfolio and you would have to show people and breaking into comics at that time i think was almost as hard as being like an actor or something it was like really hard because there wasn't that many comics being made you know we had marvel and dc and i think image was just starting so it wasn't that much comics being made so there was that many jobs to do it um then so a group of us and the reason how i got into comics was we discovered mini comics which was basically self-produced zine type um comics mm -hmm. where we would just draw them xerox them staple them and then take them to these conventions or try to sell them at con for consignment uh at comic book stores and stuff like that and you know we were not making any money for so long and <laughs> we were doing it all for the love if you were just if you're thinking about some of the top graphic novelists right now they started out like me. Like if you're thinking about your, you know, Gene Yang's, your Craig Thompson's, your Raina Taglemeyer, your all those, all these people that are um, so popular now, we all started off doing comics that nobody cared about. And we Xeroxed them ourselves, selling up conventions for a dollar, two dollars. And, um, and you know, in the, when Persepolis came out, that was basically the, the point that the ties turned and, uh, all these New York publishers saw their, the worth in comics and yeah. the worth in graphic novels, specifically non-superhero comics. And that's when all these publishers decided, okay, well, there's this wealth of talent and amazing stuff out there. Let's start publishing it. And that's now where you see that there's so much graphic novels out there. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's, it's it, the, the world, like if we, I had go back in time in high school and told high school tin fam, uh, how the world of comic has exploded in the year 2021. <laughs> no, I, I would never believe it. That's, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful, it's so like for a lifelong comic nerd like me, right now is the most beautiful time. Ever. <laughs> Jer Jeremy Dauber, I mean, you know, we kind of heard two different uh, things. It's kind of double movement of comics, one into this kind of high literary form of which, you know, Tin is really uh, an example and also an appreciator, obviously, as well as kind of like that they're just big in the culture. Can you describe what the do you think there's a relationship between those two things? Like, do they are they in tension with each other? Are they working against each other? Is it kind of just an outgrowth of the same structural phenomenon? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I first of all, let me just quickly just be a fanboy and say, Tin, I loved your work. I love your work on Level Up. Level Up actually appears in oh, the book that I wrote. Um, just so it's great to to get a chance to kind of meet you over this. Um, 
Yes, I think, now back to the election, uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, there is this braided story, this intertwined story uh, of these kind of uh, different ambitions, because almost everyone, in the same way they did Tim's telling the story, you know, they grow up loving, uh, you know, certain kinds of work, and then that enriches the other kinds of work that they do, and then that work comes back and enriches some of this uh, more populist uh, kind of material, uh, and, and and really what you're beginning to get is this incredibly rich tapestry uh, of work that is constantly sort of improving in sophistication, in ambition, in attempts at representation, um, in all of these different kind of ways. I, I think, again, as Tim's saying, you know, if, if for those of us, if we go back and read those comics that we read growing up in sort of in the 80s, and we looked at sort of what's available now in every dimension of this medium, uh, we just wouldn't be able to believe it. And it really, you can see the DNA of all of these different things coming together almost in all of it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Let's bring in listener Lena from Alameda. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Sure can. Yeah, I just want to mention that, like, your um, uh, your guest, Tin, I guess his name, uh, I came to the America, North America, at a very young age, well, not so young, at 12. And when I came, I didn't know a word of English. I came from Hong Kong. And the comics were sort of like my entry into this new world. I was reading um, Archie. I was reading uh, Superman, which I really, really loved. And like a lot of people, after a while, I kind of grew out of that. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to my 30s. I was working in the computer industry. And I, rem and I picked up the Superman comics again. And I was really delighted to see some of the stuff that they talked about, you know, you get it using, using personal computers, PCs, and uh, I think it was Lex Luthor who was, you know, using this to uh, trace what other people are doing. Well, this is what's happening now, right? So I just find it very fascinating that I think um, the comics have really also spawned a lot of scientific uh, innovation. If, if nothing else in thought, it's like a like a germination of, of the new things to come. Um, but I also want to mention that I appreciate the art form. Um, there's this book, I don't know if it's still in print, it's called Little, Little Nemo in Slumber, Slumberland. Uh -huh. It's hard to find, but it, it's just beautifully drawn. So I really like comics from very different angles. I think it's, it really helped me get into the culture of a new, you know, for me, a new environment. Yeah. So, Anyway, hey, that's, yeah, that's Lena, show. one one last quick question. What else do you think you picked up about American culture aside from just English as you were reading these? Uh, well, um, now my favorite is Doonesbury. <laughs> 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 so you can kind of see uh, the digression here, um, you know, coming from a, 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 a Asian and, you know, background and getting introduced to Archie and Veronica and, and then getting into the scientific world. And, and now, you know, we're kind of in a, this political realm. So I guess uh, pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, thanks so much, Lena, for uh, for that call. We've got some really uh, thoughtful comments, which I'm going to um, put to you, to you too. Uh, Martin writes... In my college days, I was delighted to read Head Comics. I purchased it when it came out on Zap Comics number one and continued to buy them. I must have reread the compilation of R. Crumb's material dozens of times. 
They captured, portrayed, and at times wickedly lampooned aspects of the hippie and radical political culture of the day I was a part of. They push boundaries of expression of free speech and uncensored depiction of human behavior, yet you've not mentioned these at all so far in this discussion. I still recall well the work of Rick Griffin and the boundary-pushing images of S. Clay Wilson. There were also efforts to use graphic novels to present very serious academic uh, material in this category, the cartoon History of the Universe in particular comes to mind. We have talked about it a little bit, uh, Martin, but I wanted to give um, you, you a chance, Jeremy uh, Dauber, to respond to just kind of what these radical free speech advocates within the context of comics. Um, what do you think? Where do they fit in the pantheon for you? Yeah, well, you know, first I will say, you know, I'm 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 certainly glad uh, that you're, you're you're saying that they, they deserve some time and space to be discussed, and 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 luckily I've devoted an entire chapter to that entire movement in this book that's on sale now. So you certainly can feel free to check that out. Uh, I do think that your uh, you know that that your observation is right on about Crumb that he is uh, I think I call him in the book sort of a qualified ambassador for license and liberation or something like that because that ambivalence that you mentioned really is something which makes Crumb. Uh, 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 very powerful as a thinker and sort of a, a representative. Uh, he's someone who says, you know, I see all of this. Uh, I understand its appeal. Uh, uh, I'm a little bit ambivalent about it uh, as well in sort of what it stands for. That said, the thing that Crumb was extremely unambivalent about, and this gets back to what we were talking about before, like like many of the others, was uh, this 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 dedication to free expression. Um, and and you know there was this all of this stuff that came out of his pen uh, that was incalculably influential. Right, Crumb is unquestionably one of the most influential figures in the history of 20th century cartooning. Uh, that is. Uh, you know, depending on your take on it, is either trafficking in racist, misogynist, uh, pornographic imagery for the sake of exploding people's sort of hang-ups about that expression, or is sexist, misogynist, racist, and what have you. Uh, and and between those uh, uh, polls, you know, is a lot of the discourse about what one puts on on, on paper or on pixel now uh, and how we think about it. So this is a conversation that really is evolving about crumb about a lot of this material uh, that, that's continuing to go. And that's something else that I track in the book is the story of how people think about this uh, as well as what it was. Tin, you know, I wanted to uh, check in with you. I mean, how do you interpret this part of your field's history? Uh-huh. Tin, how, how do you interpret kind of like some of these boundary-pushing uh, comic artists from, you know, the yeah. 60s, 70s? I know I, when we uh, when I started um, doing um, more alternative comics that were getting away from um, the superhero genre and more into comics that were um, more independent and alternative comics. I, I did read, you know, you you know they 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 paved the way, you know, the the Zap comics and uh, they paved the way for what we do. So like without them, without our crumb and and um, that uh, the. Uh, that, that crew, we would not be doing what we are doing now. However, I am always, uh, I've never really been into that aesthetic. Um, and I, I, I do like coming from superhero comics that were, you know, mostly for kids and stuff like that. I always shied away from things that were <laughs> very uh, boundary pushing like that. But because of, 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 of that movement, we were birthed another, uh, another um, kind of independent movement that like, would include like people like Joe Max and Seth and Chester Brown and 
uh, and Dan Casanovas and uh, the Hernandez brothers. And those are, are, are um, you know, what the people I that are more and, like in your uh, line. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and, and uh, so I was never um, as into the, 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 the sixties movement, but um, I do, you can see the correlation of how if without them, there would not be us. There would not be, you know, the, the comics, the plethora of comics that we have now. Yeah. Let's bring in one last caller, Daniel from San Francisco. Hey guys, how you doing today? Hey, good, good. Hi. Thanks for doing this call. Hey, yeah, I'm loving this. You know, when I was a kid, I was a latchkey kid and a pretty abusive childhood. And I spent a lot of time just alone or in my room. And comics were really like my my respite. This guy came by and dropped me a box when I was just sitting on my stoop outside. He said, hey, kid, you like comics? I was like, yeah. It was all the best Marvel titles. And looking Whoa. back, the content was just amazingly ahead of the curve. You know, and I loved how what it instilled in us in our youth, you know, not only did it give us a realm of possibility, maybe we weren't seeing as poor or, you know, latchkey kids or what have you. It gave us a greater realm of possibility to think about also though, with that key lesson of with great responsibility or with great power comes great responsibility. And I loved all of the ethical, you know, moral values that would be shown in all of these Marvel comics, as well as, the realm of possibility. And then, of course, we had Star Wars come out and all that. You know? So it was just this huge explosion of possibility everywhere and a way for kids to lose themselves in their imagination. And like one of your guests said, it was a way to access actual language, learning the language. And I think somebody's going to get rich on comics for ladies from that other caller's comment I heard. Like, that sounds like an untapped market. Somebody's about to be a billionaire. <laughs> uh, it's not untapped anymore. <laughs> I think women, well, Marvel's, uh, Marvel's kind of ahead of the game on it, right? I mean, look, yeah. at, look at what they got going. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think uh, one, that's one of the greatest things right now is if you go into a comic book store now, it's everybody. There are yeah. kids, there are adults, there are women, there are LGBT, all genders, all awesome. no genders, everybody, because there's just a comic for everybody. And that's yeah. it's yeah. so great. It's well, everybody has an imagination, and that's what it also inspires. It inspires you to dream and think, you know, what is possible for me? And how do people with great power handle great responsibility and clutch moments and so forth? I think our current republic leadership could use a dose of these <laughs> like great power great responsibility maybe you know we got a climate to save things like that <laughs> <laughs> thanks daniel for your call um yeah jeremy dauber do you want to get in uh, the last word just uh, sure well i'm happy you know i think that uh you know the the your caller just kept coming back to spider-man right and spider-man was sometimes called sort of in those early days the hero who could be you you know, you mm. could read yourself into Spider-Man. That was a sort of a tagline for him. And then, you know, at the same time as Spider-Man, one of those other great Marvel sort of innovations was the X-Men, um, who were these sort of set apart that all sorts of people who were marginalized, people who were gay, people who were uh, minorities, they read themselves as these X-Men, as these mutants who were sort of feared and hated by society. And one of the things that Tin has said is that, that is wonderful is that now you look at the comic shop, you don't have to do this only through metaphor and, and analog. You can actually do this by saying, I'm going to look uh, at the, 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 the shelves of the comic book shop or the local library or the bookstore, and I'm going to see all of this rich mm -hmm. and diverse tapestry represented here. So that's what's amazing. 
We've been talking about the evolution, the history, the impact of comics with Jeremy Dauber. His new book is American Comics, A History, and Tin Fam, a Bay Area cartoonist and educator. Thank you both so much for coming on. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. Yeah. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Take a look at our Twitter feed if you want to see some more suggestions for comic books. And stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.